Kazimir Malevich is one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. His black square and other paintings have made a revolution in the avant-garde art of the early 20th century. He was born in Kyiv to a Polish family and Ukrainian folk art has inspired his style and thinking, but he is still presented worldwide as a Russian artist. In this episode we will try to show you why Malevich should be considered in the Ukrainian context. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Kazimir Malevich, the classic of Ukrainian art, of Ukrainian avant-garde, one of the very, very symbolic figures right now in Ukrainian culture. What what you can say about him? Yeah, there are plenty of things to to tell about Kazimir Malevich, and yes, indeed, um, as you said already mentioned here, yeah, for many decades Malevich was considered to be a representative of Russian avant-garde. If you go uh, anywhere to a museum somewhere in Europe, you will see that Kazimir Malevich, the famous author of the Black Square, is was a, a Russian Russian artist and Russian avant-garde, which is simply not true. Let's come back to his biography. I. I, I read a lot about Malevich because I, I have a course uh, which I teach in Kiev Mahila Academy about uh, European and Ukrainian avant-garde. So I just was able to read quite a lot about him. And what I can say that uh, starting from a couple of years ago, we, we restarted to consider Malevich in his original context. So Malevich was born in Kiev in 80th, 79, just we even know his exact address now. And he was born in a Polish family and his first language was Polish. But the second language, his language was Ukrainian and only third language was Russian. So he had this identity, this Catholic, uh, Catholic Polish identity in his childhood. But, he, but his father, he was an owner of uh, a number of plants all around Ukraine. So Malevich in his childhood was able to travel a lot and to live in different Ukrainian uh, places, villages and towns. And a remarkable document of that time is his own autobiography. So we invite our audience to read his autobiography where Malevich uh, tells a couple of stories from his childhood and specifically linked to the art. And there he states that he started to be interested in the art, in painting, when he was a child. And it happened in a Ukrainian village. And he makes a very astonishing distinct, uh, distinction, difference between, on one hand, Ukrainian peasants, whom he considered to be real artists, who were doing art with whatever they had at the moment, these natural colors, and they were painting their own houses, their inside, uh, in, uh, interior of their houses, like pitch 
this Ukrainian pitch hitting, yeah, hitting device inside the house. They were painting them. And this gave him an understanding of what color was, what color is, in fact, and how color creates shape. And on the other hand, he was comparing this Ukrainian peasants to people uh, who lived in industrial areas, people, as he stated, without culture, without this feeling of art, without this manner, even he compared the manner to of clothes. They look, Ukrainian peasants, they have this t- type of, clo- of clothes, very bright colors, vishivanka, whatever, so these clothes are also linked to art. And by the way, in the same years, Sonia de Lyonne, which was who was also born in Ukraine, in Odessa, and he, she spent uh, four or five years in her childhood in Ukraine, in Odessa. Also in her biography, uh, she stated that uh, uh, she owns all her simultaneism, this, uh, I don't know, this style she invaded together with her husband, Robert Delaunay. Uh, is linked to this first impression from the childhood of the Ukrainian wedding. I mean, all these colors, bright colors. And she used that during all her life, creating not only paintings, but but also she used it in textile, uh, creating what she called uh, simultaneous uh, dresses and all the stuff. So both childhoods, this, one of Sonia Delaunay and one of Malevich, were linked to Ukraine and to Ukrainian colors. And uh, Malevich was talking about the, that fact openly in his uh, biography. And by the way, his first uh, drawings, paintings were made in Ukraine before his travel to Russia. It's interesting that uh, when you mentioned the fact that these avant-garde painters, artists, were actually going very deep into Ukrainian traditions. This is a a theme that we uh, often talk about in this podcast, that Ukrainian culture has this very interesting thing is that it doesn't create doesn't feel the conflict between tradition and modernity because modernism in Ukrainian literature, modernism uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, and then in the avant-garde there, was the, there were these attempts to combine both. Uh, so you can consider Malevich as an antidote to this, for example, the art of the 19th century, of the Romanticism, but actually it is not because... Um, well, the 19th century was probably going too deep into the pure ethnography, um, kind of idealizing maybe peasants and, and people and folk art. But Malevich was taking this as a source and creating something new. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So if we look uh, at what happened in 1915, so the year when Malevich created suprematism, suprematism, it's all these geometric forms, uh, these black square and other squares and all this, uh, all this uh, not object, bezpredmetni, as he said, bezpredmetnist drawings. The, The first exhibition was not that one which is always mentioned in the historiography, like 0.10 with his drawings, the first one was even not drawings, but the broadery, I mean, Vishivanka, made by classical, traditional peasants, women, who were presenting these forms 
using this uh, traditional technique of broadery, imagine. And nobody mentioned that for, for many years. And there's a deep link and clear, explicit link to Ukrainian traditional culture. And if you look back at what was happening in the south in Ukraine, in the 1910s, 12, 11, 12, etc., you will found people like Brothers Burluk, who were having their uh, house and you will find in the Kherson Oblast a village called Chernyanka and you will find there a group of people who were created Ukrainian futurism, Ukrainian and then Russian because Lifshitz, who is Russian, was presented there and Hlebnikov, who was Russian, also came there. So there was a place where all that started and it was in Ukraine, not in Russia. So, and they were exchanging, trying to create these new aesthetics. And yes, indeed, there was a deeper links to tradition. And this is a, a striking difference between what we see in the Ukrainian context and what we see in the Italian context because Italians started futurism back in 1909. Filippo Tommaso Marinetti in Milan started talking about futurism, like futuro, about this movement aimed, which which objective was to get to the future. They were for industrial aesthetics. They were against all kind of traditions, and that not 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 is surprising because Italy at that time was a the country of history, a country of culture, cult, country of uh, a million of museums and galleries and uh, art and uh, cinquecento quadro. Cinquecento and all that. So there was a very uh, aggressive rebellion, I would say, against tradition. But if you compare what was going on there in Italy and here in Ukraine, you'll see that Ukrainians and Russians, and indeed as well as Hlebnikov, were trying to find to find deepest past in their future. That's that's a paradox, in fact. So they were trying to link this uh, after tomorrow with a day before yesterday. You know, so just to cre- creating this kind of kind of uh, very specific universe. And Malevich, by the way, he was he was attracted by this European trends. For example, in in many books you can find these different periods of his uh, his creativity. So you can find Fauvism. He was influenced in a way by Fauvist, uh, which were, were active in Paris. Then you'll see Kubo uh, Futurism, so so Cubism and Futurism at the same time. And then his the most original trend he created, Suprematism, was also linked to this traditional Ukrainian culture. Oh, to learn more about Ukrainian avant-garde, you can listen to our podcast with Tetyana Filevska. Um, in this Explaining Ukraine podcast, um, there are lots of many other stories about Ukrainian avant-garde art. And Tetyana, who is a, now a creative, creative director of the Ukrainian Institute, she also a specialist in Malevich, and she published a book about the Kiev period of Malevich, where there are so many interesting stories to, to listen to and to read. But coming back to these attitudes towards tradition, well, the difference with the Italians is that for Italians, tradition is there, it is visible. You go outside, uh, have a walk in Rome, and you see all the statues, and you see all these buildings, and you go to a museum, it's everywhere. It's it's just maybe for people like Marinetti, it was too much. Uh, for Ukrainians, tradition was something that was erased, something w- which was, you know... Uh, which was under the surface of the earth, I would say, under the surface of of the visibility. And therefore, for example, for people like Burluk or for Livshitz that you mentioned, 
um, this tradition meant something archaeological, something going very deep inside, something uh, something maybe even archaic in this way. Uh, another interesting thing is how Malevich is working with the industrial topic because he obviously also cherishes industrialism. He, there are some paintings of, of, of his but, uh, about this, but uh, this cube of futurist painting, which... Uh, uh, I don't remember. Uh, it's it's when when there's a man on on the in the factory, right? It's it's also about industry. But indeed, I think you are right that there are so many peasant topics in his paintings, especially even in the thirties when probably he reflected upon Holodomor. We'll come back to to sort of a little bit later. Important thing to say about suprematism and about the way, the general way of Kazimir Malevich would be to say that at each step coming from from a normal classic painting, so his first drawings were just normal in a way, so he was reflecting what he was seeing. Later he was trying to use some fauvist traits, some, some fauvism approach with very bright and vivid colors and then coming back to Kubo Futurism, he was imitating some European trends in a way because in that way so it was considered normal at that context. But what happened when he invited his suprematism? Let us also explain that uh, Malevich had had very poor official education. He had only four classes of a normal school but he was this kind of person who learned and read a lot all by himself. So all his life he was reading a lot of books. He was extremely attracted by philosophy and by by some 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 kind of religiosity, some kind of mysticism. And um, uh, by co- coincidence, in St. Peter's book, when he was living in 1915, uh, uh, there were public courses of a man called Petro Piotr in the Russian, Piotr Uspensky. It was a famous at the time uh, Theosophian. So he was he was close to all this Theosophy, to all this uh, alternative religiosity, and he had written a book called Tertium Organum. Tertium Organum. And he was giving lectures about this book. They were talking about evolution, about human evolution and about four stages of human evolution and the evolution of nature. And this book apparently influenced a lot uh, Malevich because why square? So we are talking about black square, why it's not, not, not round, not, not any kind of other geometric figure. And the number four was very important for, the, for him. What he was trying to do, Malevich, they were trying to do, as many abs, many painters from this abstractionists were trying to do, they were trying to represent not the real world, but the world, but the, the, the truth about the world. So some metaphysics, some, some, some metaphysics about this world. That's why, as they argued, uh, our painting, our art cannot be, uh, Mimetical, so there will be no place for imitating nature. We are not imitating nature where we are telling you the truth about the world. So, and Malevich at that very point was influenced by Uspensky, but also by this influence nourished by this Ukrainian art of, of broadery, etc. He was trying to invent some something extremely. Uh, new and extremely mystical in a way. And this period lasted for many years until his uh, step back to to normal painting back in the 30s, but it was in different context. 
I think that we can compare this black square with with the old tradition of apophatic theology, when uh, Neoplatonists, uh, uh, Pseudo-Dionysius, uh, and other thinkers of early early Christian times of the early first millennium were talking about God and how it is impossible to characterize God, how to, it is impossible to paint God, to name God, because he is much bigger than all our adjectives, all, all our words. So maybe there is in his treatises, in Malevich treatises, and he wrote a lot of theoretical texts, and maybe you can talk about them as well. We can see, and one of these theoretical texts is called God is not dethroned, Bog nieskinut, God is not dethroned, which means that this is also kind of a futurism or suprematism, avant-garde art, which is not atheist at all, which is kind, of, which is at the same time going in in a dialogue with religion and trying to search for some new religion, something like this. Yeah, by the way, yeah, exactly, exactly. This, uh, he could who, could have been familiar with all these uh, ideas and these concepts because he really read a lot. And what we know from his correspondence is that he was encouraged to write. And this is extremely interesting to read what Malevich writes because he has no training, no real education, and his style is something really interesting in a way. He was encouraged to write by Mikhail Gershenzon is a Russian historian with whom Malevich had a correspondence. They were exchanging letters. And then Malevich wrote quite a big number of of texts, theoretical texts, not only about painting, but even about literature. For example, I do remember his series of texts about poetry. And he was trying to draw a parallel between painting and poetry, stating that, look, what's happening in poetry is... Uh, similar to what's happening in painting, when painting is living this this uh, this area of real world and tries to represent something invisible. So what Malevich trying to represent? He's trying to represent invisible, the truth about the world. Look what what he, what we see in poetry. You also see how poetry loses its connection with the reality and becomes a kind of a kind of a mystical, mystical, not rational poetry. He was referring to what we see in Futurist poetry in Russian Empire of that time, for example, Kruchonek or, for example, Hlevnikov, all that kind of things. And then uh, Malevich was trying to, to say that all arts, not only painting, is going in the, to this direction of non-objectivity, non-bespredmetnist. Non-objectivity, it means that this art, is it goes beyond uh, the representation. So this is not about just depicting the world as it is, but to telling something more important about the about the world. This was the main idea. And here, uh, we would say Malevich is the most original because, in a way, and there were some some mystical things as well. Because we all remember that this black square on this first exposition. Uh, second exposition, 0.10, was placed exactly on a place where traditionally icons were placed in a traditional Ukrainian house or in the corner. It looked like this black square took the place of the icons, so like a, a supreme sense, supreme meaning. And in that way, in poetry, in a poetry which means nothing, what they called at the time Zaumna, Poesia, Zaumna, it means not rational, beyond rational, beyond rational poetry. 
using uh, using syllables, using words which don't exist, etc., etc. It was about creating new type of representation and representing a different world from the world we see and we can uh, can understand, can can perceive in our can can get in our perception. So this was about this um, this uh, mystical in a way effort. mystical or metaphysical. I think that uh well when you mentioned this icon in in the in the corner that's uh I remember the how my grandmother in her apartment it was not a peasant's house but it was already an apartment and she had an icon in the corner and uh, uh you you don't put icons on the wall right you you, you put them on the meeting point between the two walls and uh Maybe this is also a symbol that icon is always a meeting point. But at the same time, I always had this impression that uh, when you look at this icon, you no longer see the corner itself because it's like the square turns into a circle. You know, the corner disappears and uh, the the square room is turning into a circle. Because the circle was also very important for Malevich, right? Yeah. Not, not only the square... And I think that, interestingly enough, when you're talking about this invisible, coming back to this cubofuturist painting and cubofuturist style, one very remarkable thing, I think, is that there was a French, mostly French cubism, right? There were, at, the, at, the, at the late uh, 1900s, there was Marinetti Italian futurism. And there was Malevich who tried to combine them because in a way he understood that they're both seeking the same things because they, they both were seeking movement. Early Cubism was not uh, seeking like abstract forms. It was rather inspired by the philosophy of Henri Bergson and trying to put to, 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 to make paintings representing movement and therefore in all different stages as if you are looking... At at a at a, an object in in the moving at a person who is going down the stairs, for example, and and you create different different layers of this, and uh, Malevich understood it, I think, very well. So he 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 said to myself, "Look, what these guys are, uh, are doing, both futurists and cubists, they are trying to display the movement." In the static painting, exactly. But there is also a difference. Let me let me um, just say about the difference because in Cubism and in Futurism there is one fundamental difference. In Cubism, you have what they call dynamic perspective. What is dynamic perspective? It's like you have an object, and you have a subject, so a painter who looks at an object. But if in classical uh, painting, be it uh, paisage, be it uh, portrait, or whatever. They are static. So painter is here. He's does, he doesn't move, and he tries to represent what he sees. And what he sees, it doesn't move, neither. Dynamic perspective is, is when you have an object, and the painter is not looking at this object, but he's moving around this object and seeing it at three hundred sixty degrees you know, from all the sides, like in three D picture. And then he tries to represent on a painting what he has seen. From all the directions, so a dynamic perspective. In futurism, on the contrary, it's when subject is is stable, 
doesn't move. Like in this famous, famous painting of Beto Boccioni, uh, Elasticity. Uh, it doesn't move, but the, something he represents in his painting, it's moving with a great speed, like 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 a horse, or they all these Italians they were painting horses, and then then a dog or a girl who is running to a balcony, for example, another another famous painting. So they were trying to do what cinema was doing, but they had no means to make it a movie about that. They were trying to make a movie in a, in a painting, so just to put time inside and put uh, movement inside this painting. But it's interesting that uh, I think Malevich at a certain point was uncomfortable with the fact that the only invisible thing you're trying to depict on your painting is movement. It, movement is still a question of physical world. And that's that makes a key point, key breaking point from Cubofusism to suprematism that he says, no, or... Well, you, when you look at painting, you don't see movement. Movement is invisible, but movement is still physical. I think to go beyond that, I yeah. think to, I want to go beyond that. I want to go to something metaphysical. Yes, exactly. Yeah, something metaphysical. And with suprematism, we have this important radical, radical um, cut with, with radical step away from all the all the tradition in a way. And what is also important about Malevich and what was not mentioned for decades in his biography is the fact that the last years of Malevich he spent them in Kiev. In late twenties he went back to Kiev. Why? Because there were many repressions and many not a lot of liberty in Moscow and then the social realism has already started this uh, um, uh, this uh, terror and pressure on the free art, on avant-garde art. And Malevich felt very much uncomfortable in, in, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg. And so he went back to Kiev. And what we know now, what was discovered just a couple of years ago in, by Tatiana Filevska, by the way, and um, her colleagues, is that Malevich was teaching in, in a high school here in Kiev, Academy of Arts, and he for for a couple of years, and he was trying to create his new theory of painting, uh, and to teach it. And the theory itself was not only about how to paint, because the final objective for Malevich was how to create a new man, how to create a new type of artist, how to create new conditions for artistic work here in Ukraine. Why not? And he was talking about the development, the, the total development of an artist, not about, not only about the way how to change um, the style. It was not about style. It was about the new philosophy of what art is and what painting is. And uh, fortunately, these uh, there were people who were recording, who were taking notes, in fact, of the lectures he was giving in this uh, institute uh, of art, and. Fortunately enough, we we still have these uh, these texts, and they uh, are published uh, and described by Tatiana Filevska in this important book about this Kiev period of Malevich. It is his late period, not the last one, because then, then he went back once again to Russia. 
to be persecuted once again, to be arrested. Don't forget that Malevich was under arrest for a couple of months and he was extremely traumatized by this uh, arrestation, by his, his imprisonment. And by the way, when asked by by, by Enkevede, he replied about his nationality. He said, I'm Ukrainian, by the way. Yeah, and um, they arrested him and uh, they didn't kill him, but he died from his own death, right? He was released a couple of months before his death. He was already ill and he suffered, suffered a lot. And maybe let's, maybe the last story about his last period and about the important testimony of Holodomor we can find in Malevich paintings. So in the last period, in, in 30s, early 30s, you can easily see these figures, these people, uh, real figures, but without faces. You know, like uh, like this traditional lalka motonka, people without faces. And there are some explanation to that, and there is about that he was representing also the victims of Holodomor, people without identities for for this propaganda regime. And he was trying to to tell his word about the tragedy which was happening in Ukraine in 32 and 33. He knew about that. He was aware about the signification of this. And he tried his best. And it's in time, it was the same period when he came back to a figurative painting. Yeah, and we can you can see still the paintings of this period, uh, depicting rather not not the cities but rather the countryside, right? Yeah, and then the big the, the big step, the big uh, borderless Ukrainian step, and then the peasants, the peasants there. And he says in one of his paintings, one of the inscriptions on these paintings, late paintings, he wrote literally in Russian, "Где серп и молот." Там смерть и голод. And we translated where you have Serb и молод, these uh, Soviet, Soviet symbols, you have death and famine. So he knew that this famine, artificial famine in Ukraine was linked to Soviet regime, totalitarian regime who killed millions here in Ukraine. Yeah, so this is our short introduction to Malevich. Maybe we can summarize that he's a person li- uh, looking for new forms, new ideas, new metaphysical art. He created this black square, but he's coming back to the figurative painting as well when he sees this death coming on his land and creating this nothingness. This was our introduction to Kazimir Malevich. We hope you will read more about him and will cherish also uh, value his paintings, but also remember that he is a Ukrainian artist. This was the podcast Explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Titiano Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and uh, head of international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Don't forget to subscribe to us and you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your assistance to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.